Good morning, Bruce City Church. So good to be with you at our Christmas services, which <clears throat> I haven't mentioned that out loud since we had them, but how amazing was that Christmas experience, those four services that we hosted? I'm so grateful for the volunteers and the staff and the work that the elders, everyone did to just host this amazing space to be able to celebrate Christmas with one another, particularly Grace Lund, all the passion and work that you poured into that. Um, everyone, Elliot, Shelley, Randy, the Bob and Diane, uh, Bob Turner and Diane Wonder. It's just an amazing time, so thank you guys. But as we were gathered around a fire, I talked to my friend Amy Crawford, who's a part of Bruce City, long time, part of Bruce City and Metrobrook Church, and she said that whenever I say good morning, friends, Amy says out loud, good morning, Randy. That just warmed my heart. So, uh, Amy, I know you said that out loud. Good to see you. Now, also, I just wanted to say before I get into things, something that I realized, something that I do every week, sharing about what God is doing at Bruce City Church has never been easier than during this time, during this pandemic, because we're online. Sometimes we want to share about how our church is our favorite thing, and we want to share about it, but it takes a little bit of guts Sharing about Bruce City Church is really easy right now. See, I do it every single mo Sunday morning when I hop onto Facebook. I get on, I say, good morning, family, or good morning, friends, and then I share. I share it on Facebook. I share the service and say, join us. That's really easy. And I want to encourage you to just take this opportunity to, to share what God's doing around here in just a really easy way. Click the share button and say, join us. You might just like what you find. Do it now. Do it every Sunday morning when you sign in on Facebook. Now, I want to, before we jump into this contemplative business that you've been hearing about, I want to just take a, a minute to talk about what's, what's transpired in, in our country, in our nation in this last week. And as I do that, <clears throat> as you're sharing the service and doing all the things, I know we, I love seeing your comments and chats. I love interacting together. Don't do that right now. As I talk about what's happened in our nation, don't, don't post anything political or partisan or divisive. Just listen, please. You can chat when I'm done. But this last Wednesday, is, as I watched on, on the computer live or on television live, our nation moved closer to a violent insurrection and coup than we've ever seen in last couple of centuries. I watched in horror and disgust as our leaders, senators, representatives, our president, fanned the flames of insurrection and violence. As I watched even after our capital was plundered and invaded and violently taken over, even after all that happened, watching deep into the night our representatives and senators arguing with each other, hollering at each other, speaking over one another in violent ways. It struck me what day this last Wednesday was. Do it. Some of you probably know, but many of us probably don't. This last Wednesday, January 6th, it's not just a day that will go down in infamy for the violent, riotous mob that took over our capital. This last Wednesday, January 6th, was the day of Epiphany. 
Epiphany. Do you know what the day of Epiphany means? The significance of it, the symbolism in it. See, I was, I was thinking about after I saw all this stuff go down and as I was watching in real time, I was thinking, I was trying to focus on the contemplative journey and I was thinking maybe I need to do a whole sermon on the Epiphany. Maybe it's what we need. I'm not going to do that this morning, maybe some other year. But the meaning and the significance of the day of Epiphany is that the day of, on the day of Epiphany, we celebrate and recognize the manifestation and proclamation as Jesus Christ is King of the world. Felt ironic. See, on, on the day of Epiphany, we, we, we recognize and celebrate that the three magi, the three kings from the east, came and witnessed this new baby who was born and was King of kings and Lord of lords. And so on the day of Epiphany, we celebrate and recognize that Jesus has been made known as King of kings in the west and to the east. In other words, in other words the entire world now knows that the creator and ruler of all creation of the whole world has come and been revealed and manifested and made known. In other words, on this day of Epiphany, we remember and, and recognize and celebrate that the rulers and kings of this world now have met their end and they have met their maker because the creator and ruler of the world has come and made himself known and manifested himself to the rulers and the principalities and the powers of this world. On the day of Epiphany, Epiphany we, we realize and recognize that no matter who's on the throne, no matter who's king, we have a different kind of king. As I watched the violence and riotous mobs, it reminded me of this ironic king of kings who comes meekly, completely different than the kings and kingdoms of this world. Our king has come in the line of David and see David enter Jerusalem on this big, powerful armada with the biggest, most beautiful, most intimidating horses the world has ever known. But our king, the king of kings, who was made manifest on the day of Epiphany, this king rides into Jerusalem on an ass, on a donkey, hailed by the peasants. This is the king that we celebrate on Epiphany. Our king is, king, is crowned by the rulers and kings of this world, but the crown that, this, that our king, that the king of kings and lord of lords is crowned with is a crown of thorns. This king of kings and lord of lords gets led by a violent mob to be murdered himself. And when our king does that, our king takes all the violence and all the ugliness and all the sin of this world and he takes it upon himself and he crucifies it in himself. And then the story is still not over because see then our king, the king of kings and lord of lords, that where all the kings and rulers of the world find their end and meet their maker, our king triumphs over all the violence and all the destruction and all the anger and all the hatred and all the bitterness this world could ever give him. He, he crucifies it in himself and he triumphs over it in the resurrection and ascension. This is what we celebrate on the day of Epiphany. 
So it doesn't matter what chaos and craziness is going on in the world around us, friends. It doesn't matter if it's an elephant or a donkey on the throne of our nation. See, what we have is a lamb on the throne who will never be unseated and overthrown. This is the reality. So let's pray and center ourselves. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, we bow before you in no other. We pledge our allegiance, Jesus, to you in no other. We say we want to be bearers in, in and witnesses to you and your kingdom, not any other ideology or party, not any other ruler or king or president or any other man or, man or woman. We pledge ourselves to you, Jesus. And so now, Holy Spirit, comforter, counselor, would you come and center us in the way, the way of Christ, the way of the Lamb, the way of all eternity that has been whispered into our hearts, that has called us into being, that settles us in your presence. Center us now in you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we've been through quite a year. I know that it's trendy to think about and celebrate how 2020 is over, but let's just think about the last calendar year. We're, we find ourselves at January 10th. Let's just think about the last calendar year. In the last calendar year, some stuff has gone down, friends. I know it's a bit redundant. People talk about how 2020 has been a dumpster fire, but I don't think we've finished processing what 2020 and what this last calendar year has been and done to us. Nobody, none of us, unless you're really old, none of us has, living, has lived through a global pandemic, but that is what we are still living through right now, is, an, is a global pandemic. We have seen in our state alone over 5,000 people died from COVID. No matter what you think about COVID, no matter if you think it's stupid or a hoax, or if you think it's the most scary thing in the world, no matter what you think, we've seen over 5,000 people die in the state of Wisconsin in the last, in the last 10 months. We've seen about 400,000 US, U.S. citizens. We've seen over 400, about 400,000 Americans die in the last 10 months from COVID. 400,000, almost half a million. Now, if you're old enough to remember 9-11, if you're old enough to be you know, in, in your youth or adult during 9-11, you remember that day like it was yesterday. I know I do. Remember it very clearly. It was this crazy, chaotic, sorrowful, griev grievous day where almost 3,000 Americans died. Friends, what we are living through is like living through 9-11 for 133 days in a row and counting. Just take that in. 
we're living through the trauma of 3,000 Americans being dying for 133 days in a row and counting. This is what we've lived in light of. We've lived in light of, in the, in the last calendar year, we've lived in the light of some debates and some arguments and some tension and, and, and tears in our culture and society like I've never seen before. Just think of this thing called the mask debates. The mask debate. Do you remember watching video of a grandma taking a video in Costco and a guy assaulting her because she asked him to wear a mask? Do you remember just this, this tumult and division over whether or not to wear a mask? Families being ripped apart, relations being ri- relationships being ripped apart, people leaving churches whether, because whether or not they said we should wear a mask or not. I wish I was joking, but I'm not. Church is being torn apart by whether or not to wear a mask. And then, before 2020, before this this last calendar year, in order to have lived through a civil rights movement, you had to be in your 60s or older. But now all of us have, have lived through a civil rights movement and uprising because it was within this last calendar year of May of 2020 when we all watched George Floyd be murdered on the streets of Minneapolis, having a police officer unrelentingly kneel on his neck for nine minutes straight. We were all traumatized, all of us, particularly our black and brown brothers and sisters, watching this over and over again. This was after Ahmaud Arbery in the last calendar year was lynched in a suburban Georgia neighborhood. And this is after Breonna Taylor was killed in her own home, laying in her own bed. And then we watched this uprising, speaking up and standing up for racial justice and equality, saying no more. And do you remember in the beginning of it, because we remember, most of us remember this, this division and this fight, but, but in the beginning, late May, early June, it was a unified voice in our nation where people of all races and creeds and, and, and backgrounds, ethnicities, whether you were suburban or urban or rural in the country, we saw people kneeling for nine or demonstrating and, and, and protesting, saying, no more, we stand in solidarity with our black and brown brothers and sisters. It was beautiful. And then it didn't take long for that to turn into a debate and a fight, and, and, and that escalated quickly to say, Okay, you've had your day. You've had your say. You've, you've, said, you've said we need justice and equality enough. Now be quiet. Stand down. We've heard enough. And when the voices for justice and equality didn't quiet down or stand down, then we saw the militias come to the surface. Then we saw the, the, the anger and the tension in the, in the, in the one side against another. We saw a militia boy from Illinois come to Kenosha after Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back and people were demonstrating. We saw a a 17-year-old come from Illinois and shoot two people who were demonstrating, murdering them in the streets. We saw car dealerships burning up. We saw protests turn into riots and all the debate that went with it. This is in the last calendar year. Much less, let's not forget that we we just finished one of the most combative, divisive elections we've known in in decades. 
And then we thought everything would be done. All the divisiveness, all the fighting, all the, all the anger and all the negative ads, all the negativity would be done on November 3rd or whenever it was that we voted. But then we've seen it stretch out in all these court battles and calls of fraud and all this stuff. And then we thought, okay, 2020 is done. We got a clean slate. And then January 6th happened. Violent mobs taking over our capital. This has been a heck of a year. And not even just in the world around us, but in Bruce City Church, we've carried a lot of heavy things. And within three short days in March, we went from planning a service in this building as we know it to shutting everything down and going all online. We as a church have tried to find peace and calm in the midst of a chaotic world. We as a church have responded to a civil rights movement because we felt compelled by the Holy Spirit. And then we as a church dropped the evangelical label in late summer and early fall because again, we felt compelled by the Holy Spirit. And I'm really proud that we did those things. But it wasn't always the most popular moves or most popular things to talk about. And even if we did agree with those things that we as a church talked about, they're heavy things to talk about. I felt, personally, I felt the weight of talking about those things and carrying those things. These are heavy, anxiety-inducing things that we've talked about and waters that we've waded in. And this past fall, I just got to thinking... We need a break. We need to recenter as a church. You know, I mean, we need to recenter as a culture and society, but I don't pastor all of our culture and society. I lead Bruce City Church, and I just felt the Holy Spirit saying, We need to recenter. We need to learn how to shock absorb in these crazy, chaotic times because what this last week has taught us is. This world might not just flip a switch at 2021. So the question is, is our, not our world going to get less crazy? The question is, how do we live in the midst of a crazy and chaotic world, friends? And so since about this last October, I've been looking forward to going through this series on the contemplative journey. It seems like what we as a church need, what I need personally, what we as a church need, what we as a culture need, is a lesson from the mystics. A lesson about how to walk and engage in this contemplative way. What is, we're going to ask, be asking questions like, what is the contemplative journey? How do I engage in this contemplative way? In the midst of the chaos and craziness and the world going mad around us, how do we find true and real inner peace in the midst of the chaos? Do we have to exit from it? Do we have to withdraw from the world around us? Or is there actually a way for us to access inner peace and inner freedom and rest for our souls in the midst of a crazy and chaotic world? So for the next six weeks or so, we're going to be thinking about this contemplative journey that we're going to be invited into thinking about what it is and how we engage with it. And for the next two weeks after today, for the next two weeks, you get a real treat. 
because I've invited my spiritual director. His name's Mark Werner. He is, I'm, I'm a novice at this contemplative journey. Mark is more of an expert. He would not say that, but I'm going to say that for him. And Mark is going to share with us for the next two weeks, training us and teaching us in this contemplative way, this contemplative journey. You're welcome ahead of time. But we're going to reflect as a church. So this week, I just want to ask the simple question with the rest of our time. What is the contemplative journey? What is the contemplative journey? It sounds really good. I read about the contemplative journey for a long time, but I never really lived it out until I got on sabbatical a couple of years ago. And then under Mark's direction, spiritual direction, I got to taste it for the first time and I became an addict in the best way. And I'm still no expert. I still fight against it. But I want to ask this question, what is the contemplative journey? What does that mean? What is this contemplative way? And there's all sorts of definitions. Shelley described it by a Franciscan priest named Richard Rohr in a really wonderful way that I agree with. There's all sorts of definitions and all sorts of ways for understanding the contemplative journey. But my favorite, personally, that describes it in the most holistic way is in just a simple statement that was given by a Jesuit theologian named Walter Burkhart. And Walter Burkhart described the contemplative journey as this. He said, the contemplative journey is taking a long, loving look at the real. Let me say that again. This Jesuit theologian, Walter Burkhart, said, the contemplative journey is taking a long, loving look at what is real. Now, the moment I heard that definition, it arrested me. I don't know about you, but this idea of taking a long, loving look at what is real arrested me because that is so far outside of my normal reality. I don't know about you. Taking a long, loving look at what is real. Let's just break that down in a few words, the most important words. Taking a long look. See, I'm not good at taking a long look at anyone or anything. Am I the only one who kind of lives life on fast forward? From the moment my alarm goes off to to, to I get out of bed to the moment my kids are down, I feel like it's a little bit of a chaotic rat race. If If you are a parent, do you know that feeling of you don't feel like a real person until you've put your sweatpants on and the kids are in bed and the house is quiet and you've got maybe 45 minutes before you're cashed. We live lives on autopilot and on fast forward and we don't, we don't take a long look at much anything or anybody, but we just take a glance at everybody around us because we got to get to the next thing always. We got to give, make our, do the assi- next assignment or the next job or the next, next task or we've got this thing ahead of us that we want to really accomplish and get to. It's always about what's next in this rat race that we live in. We don't take a long look at anything. We take a glance at everything and everyone around us. We live our lives on autopilot. And the contemplatives would say, stop it. You don't need to live in that kind of rat race. You weren't designed. God didn't design you to live and fast forward. 
See, God doesn't take a glance at you and move on to the next thing that's to that he needs to accomplish, that, that God needs to accomplish. God looks and takes a long look at us. See, because God's calling us to take a long enough look at the people around us and the world around us long enough to actually see them rather than just see what's on the surface. So the contemplative journey starts when we start slowing ourselves down, slowing our inner men and women down, and taking a long look at the people in the world around us. That's the first step. I'm immediately challenged by that. And then Burkhart says we take a long, loving look at the people and things around us. Now, this is particularly challenging for me because if I would, if I would give, my, give us my reality and how I live in a snapshot, it would say I take a quick judgmental glance at what's on the surface around me. I don't take a long loving look at the people around me. I take a quick judgmental glance at the people around me. I attach Democrat or Republican to the people that I see on my computer screen or in my news feed. I attach all sorts of different labels to people. I'm really good at judging people and having that be the first impulse and the first way I see people around me is through this judgmental lens. Am I the only one? And when we do that, we completely bar ourselves off from the contemplative way and the contemplative journey and from the Christ-like way. Thank God, God doesn't look at me the way I look at other people around me. See, the contemplatives are calling us to slow down, to take a long enough look at the people and the things around us to really see them. And then make sure that that look isn't a look of judgmentalism isn't a look of self-piety but it's a long and loving look when i do that i realize that the people and the things around me have indescribable worth and value even if it's with a ruler or a leader that i disagree with that person has indescribable worth and value see i can only see that if i take slow down and take a long loving look at the people around me, taking a long, loving look at nature and the created world around me. Too often, we just glance by in our fast-forward, autopilot kinds of, way of ways of living, and we just, we just take for granted the beauty and the wonder of the created world around us. Or we see the natural world around us as resources to be used for our own benefit and gain, to be pillaged and plundered. And instead, God is saying, do not look at my creation that I have declared as tov. I've declared as good over and over again. Do not look at my creation as a means to an end. Do not look at my creation as resources so you can resource your fast-forward autopilot lives. Look at my creation and pause. Take a long, loving look at the sky at night sometime. Breathe in the fresh air. Take a walk and just take a long, loving look at God's creation because God called it Tov, good, over and over again, and He's calling us to see the goodness in it. Taking a long, loving look, and then this last word, at that which is real taking a long, loving look at what is real. See, when I look at things, I take a quick, judgmental look 
on the surface, not at what is real, but what I find on the surface. And if people took me on the face value on what's on the surface, they'd find a judgmental, angry, holier-than-thou dude who a lot of times isn't fun to be around. But thank God that Jesus doesn't see me that way. Jesus sees through my ego. Jesus sees through my false sense of, 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 of awesomeness. And he sees through to who I really am. And God is calling us. Jesus is calling us. The Spirit is calling us to do the exact same thing for the people around us. To see through and see past the surface level stuff that we're trained to see and to see that which is real. To see what is real about the world around us. To know that on January 6th, when our world seems like it's gone mad, to know that that's the day of epiphany when the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of all things, has been manifested and made known that this is, is all belongs to God. Taking a long, loving look at that which is real. That's what we're going to be invited into. Let me just give you a couple of quotes from some modern-day contemplatives. This is a quote from the Franciscan priest named Richard Rohr that Shelley quoted earlier. He says this, In contemplation, you move from being from ego consciousness to soul awareness. You move from being fear-driven to being love-drawn. <laughs> Whoa, let me just read that again because it's so loaded and beautiful. In contemplation, you move from ego consciousness to soul awareness. Now, what he's trying to get at is that our ego is just what we call this protective shell that we build around our souls. At the truest, most inmost part of our being that the psalmist talked about is our soul, this, this beautiful tender, vulnerable self that is our inner men and women, our souls. But we quickly from an early age on realize that my soul is tender and it can get hurt. And so I need to build this protective shell around it. And that's called our ego. And our ego grows and grows and grows until we think that's our true selves. We think that our ego and this, this facade that we've created, whether Randy's the funny, sarcastic guy, or Randy's the witty guy, or Randy's the guy that he's the challenger. He challenges everything. I, I build this ego and this false self, and I don't even have access to my truest self anymore. That My soul has been so protected and so, so hidden behind my ego that I can't even access my soul anymore. And Rohr says, when we walk in this contemplative journey, taking a long and loving look at that which is real, we move from being ego-conscious to being aware of our own souls. And then he says, and then we move from being fear-driven to being love-drawn. This idea of being fear-driven describes almost all of religion. I don't think this is an overestimation to say pretty much all of religious order, all of religious people, including Christianity, are fear-driven primarily. We motivate people through fear. We, we are motivated by religious leaders through fear. Fear is a very powerful motivator. But it's not a good way to live. It's a terrible way to live. 
And the contemplative journey invites us from being fear-driven into being love-drawn. How about that phrase? To being drawn. Instead of being driven by fear, we are drawn by the love that is God. We are drawn into this world on a daily basis by the God who is love. We are drawn into our, our neighborhoods by love rather than by fear. We are drawn into relationships by love rather than being driven by fear. How about that? That sounds like a better way to live, doesn't it? Susan Rush, a modern spiritual director, said this about the contemplative way. If we stay faithful to the practice of contemplation, our false self begins to be dismantled and we live more and more from our center, from that divine ground of being, from our true self. I'm going to say that again. If we stay faithful to this practice of contemplation, our false self begins to be dismantled and we live more and more from our center, from that divine ground of being, from our true selves. As bearers of the Imago Dei, image bearers of Christ. As we walk in this contemplative way, in this contemplative journey, taking a long and loving look at that which is real, we begin to let our false selves fall to the wayside and we begin living out of our true selves, our souls. That divine ground of being called God. Our true selves. Now, as we finish up, just in case we have some good Protestants, which I hope we do, I think we do, who are asking this good Protestant question, this sounds very new agey. This sounds very spiritual, and we're taught to be skeptical of that. Is this even biblical? That's the million-dollar question. Is this biblical? Well, friends, good news. It's not just the gurus and the weirdos. It's actually the psalmists who instruct us in the way of contemplative journey. The psalmists were the original contemplatives in our faith journey who give us this this way, this guide, this pathway for how to live in a contemplative way. These verses are right in our holy text, but we never even recognize them. They're hidden in plain sight, and it's time we see them for what they are. So let me just give you two examples of what I would call contemplative texts within our holy text. The first, they're both within the Psalms. The first is Psalm 131. Psalm 131, this the psalmist says this, my heart, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Do you hear that? The psalmist says, I come before you and I humble myself, God. And humbling ourselves is just a pretty religious way of saying, I rid myself of my false self before you, God. See, I've built that ego. I've built this hard, protective shell around my very inner self, my truest self. I've built it so that I could protect myself from the, the anger and the chaos and the craziness and the, and the pain of the world around me. I've built up this hard outer shell, this false self 
my ego. And now I come before you, God, and I humble myself, and I just become undone before you. And I realize that I can be myself before you now. I can lay my ego down. I can lay my false self down. I can lay my false self-aggrandizement down and my, how awesome I think I am or how terrible I think I am. None of it matters, see, because I quiet and calm myself before you, God, like a weaning child. We've got four kids, and I, it's the joy of my life to watch my wife and her affection for our children. And as I've watched my wife with our kids, particularly as little ones, as babies, just saw over and over again, there's nothing that that little baby could do to win their mom's affection. There's nothing that they could do and there's nothing that they could undo. There's nothing that they could, there's no great thing that they could make that their mom love them more and there's no great terrible thing that could make their mom love them less. They're just calm and still before their mom. And the psalmist says, this is what we are called to do in this contemplative journey. To rid ourselves of that, that hard shell, that false self, that ego that we've built and humble ourselves of all of the opinions and ideas that we have of ourselves or that the world has of ourselves. And we realize that we're accepted as we are. Loved fully as we are. To the deepest inmost parts of our inner being. And we calm and quiet ourselves before God like a child is before a mother. I'm going to encourage you to meditate on that scripture, just those three verses this week. Here's another one, Psalm 84. Psalm 84 is a very familiar psalm. Let's read that as we finish our time. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. You guys know this one. This is a familiar one. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart, hearts are set on pilgrimage. I love that picture. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord, is, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold for those who, whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now, I remember being in college and being in college ministry and singing this psalm. Some of you who are my age remember this song. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Woo! You know what I'm talking about? And I sang that song with everything that was within me. And I, I, I tried. Here's what I did. And I think a lot of people were like me. I tried to feel all the feels so much so that I actually felt like I was in the courts of the Lord Almighty. And I felt like I'd probably have to wait until the day I die to be 
to be in the courts of God, to be in the presence of God. And I, um, but maybe if I try really hard, I can feel that feeling. Do you know what I'm talking about? I interpreted this psalm as saying that. I just got to be faithful. I got to trust in the Lord all the days of my life. And maybe that day at the end of my life, I can be in the courts of the Lord God Almighty. I don't think that's what the psalmist is saying at all. I think I had it all wrong. See, I think the psalmist is saying there's nowhere you can go where you won't find the presence of God. Just look at verse 3 of our text. Verse 3, it says, Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. I don't think the psalmist is talking about some crazy heavenly deified sparrows and swallows living near the altar of the Lord in the eternal city. I think the psalmist is saying no matter where the sparrow or swallow make their nest and make their home, your presence is there. As a matter of fact, not just your presence, but your altar. See, what the psalmist is saying is wherever the sparrow or the swallow make their home and make their nest, the altar of God is there. It's a holy, sacred space. There is nowhere you can go that the presence of God isn't. There's nowhere you can go that's not holy space where the altar of God isn't. In verse 6, it says in the NIV translation, as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. In other translations, it says, when they pass through a desolate valley, they make it a place of springs. In other words, it doesn't matter the chaos and the craziness going on around you. If you pass through the highest mountain and you're celebrating and full of joy, or if you pass through the deepest valley of despair, you can make it a place of new life and of springs. It just depends on what you're seeing. Are you taking a quick judgmental glance at what's on the surface? Or are you taking a long, loving look at what is real? This psalm is telling us and inviting us into this contemplative journey that no matter if the world's gone mad or not, you can make that place a place where the springs are flowing and bubbling. See, because you'll never be in a place where the presence of God is not. You'll never be at a place where you can get away from the altar of God. See, the, the ground that you walk on right now in your home, in your apartment, in your, on your deck, in your patio, in your, in your bathroom, in your living room, in your bed, it's holy ground. And you're being invited into a different kind of journey, into a different kind of way. So friends, this is the invitation that we've been given. You're being invited into this contemplative journey by the Spirit of God. You're being invited to shed that ego and false self that's designed to protect your soul. You're being invited to just shed it and to live out of your truest self even now with all your longings, all your fears, all your doubts. See, because God embraces it all. You don't have to, you don't have to pretend you don't have to pretend. You don't have to try to be right. We have a God who holds joy and sorrow all inside of the divine life, and he's inviting you to. You're being invited to live, instead of being fear-driven, to be love-drawn. How about that?
What if, you, what if we put a little reminder and wrote, wrote and put on our nightstand so that we could go to sleep and wake up every morning and say, you are not fear-driven, you are love-drawn. This is the invitation, friends. None of us are excluded. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to remind us over and over to take that long, loving look at what is real. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to just give us this invitation over and over and over again. Humble yourself. Shed your false self. You don't have to protect yourself around me. You can be yourself. Would you help us to recenter ourselves? We, we have dealt with so much anxiety. In this past year, we've dealt with more anger than we knew were inside of ourselves. In this past year, we dealt with more judgmentalism than we cared to reckon with in ourselves, in the world around us. In this past year, we've been overwhelmed by anger and division, divisiveness. It is weighed like an anvil on our backs. And so we ask you, Jesus, we ask you, Father, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to remind us of what's real. To center ourselves in you. To help us slow our inner men and women. And so now we just sing and let this song connect with the inmost parts of our souls that we hear you calling our name. We hear this song of love that you sing. We are love-drawn, not fear-driven. Yes and amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's worship one more time together.